We've all heard the phrase, that kind of thing doesn't happen in our town. But here on Midwest Murder, we will shatter that false reality. In fact, it happens more often than we know. And sometimes the details of the most horrific crimes that happen in our neighborhoods are lost in the back pages of newspapers, forgotten on our news channels, and eventually erased over time. We're here to talk about murder, diving into some of the most controversial cases in Midwest history. This show will not shy away from the morbid details of these horrific events and the often ugly truths behind them. What you will hear is a detailed timeline of events, perspectives from those closely involved, and analysis by experts. What you will feel is the darkness that surrounds each story, the innocence lost by the victims, and hopefully the justice that was ultimately delivered. Jonah Lanto. Don Palumbo. Gets me every time. I got goosebumps that time. Usually you give me the goosebumps. I don't get self-goosebumps, but it happened tonight. That's that's weird. I I think it's because we're coming at you for the very first time from the hall at Fargo Brewing Company. This place is amazing. It's a huge, humbling, amazing moment for us. A big thank you to Jade Presents. Incredible team here. And I just truly can't say... It's such a cool moment to be on this stage right now here, you guys. It's it, it, yeah, I and I don't I don't get emotional much, um, but this was got a little got a little emotional today. You, this is this is maybe one of the coolest things I've ever done. It so, is, and we're doing it absolutely cool. up there with the coolest things I've yeah. ever done in my whole life. Always wanted to be in a moment like this, and here we are. So a thanks big to thanks to yeah. to you guys. Mm-hmm. Shout out. And a big thanks to everyone who has taken time to rate and review Midwest Murder on iTunes and Spotify. The comments, the feedback, we dig it. I appreciate the fact that we can be in the background for somebody, maybe somebody's jogging companion, maybe somebody's escape, whatever it might be. You guys, it's cool to have you out there listening, and it's really cool to hear what you think about Midwest murder. Don, what are folks saying? Well, TYT legend gave us five stars. Very entertaining. These two are naturals telling their stories. I almost feel like I'm in the room with them. I would love to see a live show sometime if they ever travel south. And my question is, how far south? How far south? Let's talk about it. Uh, for those few who gave bad reviews, I think they might just be a little, they might just be jealous because they do not have any talent or they just have their panties in a wad and don't know what entertainment is. <laughs> you know, I, I am touched to be defended. This, this man or woman's out there defending our honor right, in their right. review. Absolutely. And we and appreciate that. Greatly appreciated. Greatly appreciated. <laughs> you know, now it's just getting, I think Jonah's just trying to make me feel uncomfortable with what I have to, with what I have to read. So if you're leaving a review... Leave some uncomfortable ones, and we'll we'll make Jonah read them next time. Great. Uh, Leslie Ann eight gave us five stars. Where to next? My husband and I recently started listening on a road trip. We are addicted. We love the banter between Don and Jonah. It's the perfect amount. It's so interesting to learn about all the crazy things that happen in the Midwest. Keep up the great work. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks. As uh, one. Thanks person, for bringing, bringing us with you. Yeah. Somebody fun. put it. I think what crushing false reality since twenty twenty. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Yeah. Uh, big thanks as well to our sponsor, Shots Crossroads. They've always got big portions, competitive prices. Even when it comes to getting a tank of gas, you can save seven cents a gallon when you pay in cash. We love them. You know it. The ranch, the gravy, if you ever pass them through Minot, it's the best there is, the best there was, maybe the best there ever will be. And it's always consistent at Shots Crossroads, Don. Yeah, they are friendly. They've got a great atmosphere. Uh, the consistency is absolutely huge. It's clean and uh and their pies are usually their pies are good. They're just and a 10 out of 10 banana cream pie. And, and they have Perrette pie. I mean, 
not many people have Perrette pie. And even some of you Midwesterners are like, what? Yeah, trust me, it's a thing. So, Look, yeah. 45 awesome. years of consistency, shots, crossroads, family owned and operated. We love having them here. Yeah. And uh, thank you. Big thanks to them. And Don, I, I have a question for you. Have you ever been adjusted? Yes. I mean, not in many, in many, many ways, <laughs> not like when I got attitude adjustments from my dad back in the day, I'm just different kind of ju- adjustment here. Have you ever had an attitude adjustment? I'll give you, you an attitude ever- adjustment. Yeah. Well, I got a pretty <laughs> awesome adjustment recently. It was at premier chiropractic and they combined several aspects of patient care. The first is being good with their hands. Big shout out to Becky. She got my hip all dialed in and for them, it comes down to adjusting and bringing back joint movement. So we thank premier North Dakota, premier chiropractic, North Dakota for sponsoring this episode in part of Midwest murder. And they also like to incorporate exercise. They give you exercise techniques for whatever it is you are ailing from or trying to recover from adjustments, dry needling, soft tissue work, and a rehab area for functional exercise. You can experience the difference in three locations, Minot, Ken, Mayer, and Stanley at Premier Chiropractic. Check them out on Facebook, Premier Chiropractic ND, and premierchiropractic.com. Huge thanks to our sponsors. Couldn't do it without them. Yeah, big thank you. It's and very, very cool. You can keep up with all of our events on Facebook and Instagram. Yeah. Buy us a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com yeah. or a hot dish. It really, it, it helps us. It, it helps, it helps yeah. fund the show. It helps fund the things that we do. And of course we've got merch available at tpublic.com slash stores slash Midwest murder. And we're always looking for uh, t-shirt ideas. ideas. And, and so there are a lot of times that we say some dumb shit and not just once, but repeated. And so if you, uh, if you happen to like one of those, Send us a send us a message. We'll drop make one. We'll make drop a shirt. in the old suggestion yeah. box. Yeah, I mean, I will plug my favorite. The you only got a thing, favorite one? Well, yeah. The only thing open after midnight are legs in hospitals. So that is my favorite, I, and it is a T-shirt. I want to get to a point where everybody just says that with you <laughs> when you say it at, at a show. Well, good golly, I'm saying it enough for people. So maybe maybe everybody will start catching on. All right. <laughs> Our story begins in 1993. It was a year that gave us one of the most memorable news events of my childhood, the federal and state law enforcement siege of Branch Davidian Compound in Waco, Texas, that culminated in the deaths of 76 Americans. The Brady Bill, requiring background checks of prospective gun buyers, is signed into law. Bill Clinton is sworn in as president and later that year signs NAFTA into law. In 1993... Dyson sells the first bagless cyclonic vacuum cleaner. Was it a million dollars then too? I, <laughs> they started high. They did. I mean, apparently they work, but I don't know. Police begin investigations of child abuse by Michael Jackson. The popular toys in 1993, the talk boy, the Magna Doodle, the Aladdin handheld game, party and play Stacy, and the Nerf Aerostorm Gatlin gun. So the Magna Which ones did you have? So Magna Doodle, I, I actually, I, I sang when I was reading this just to, to, to check out all that stuff. Uh, beforehand, I actually sang the uh, commercial in my head. The Magna yeah, Doodle I Doodle. I did, yeah. In your head. Yeah, and then of course the Talk Boy. That was, um, wasn't it because of Home Alone? It that was. was. Yeah, wow, that's right. good call that's out. Right. Yeah, yeah, Home Alone too. Yeah. And then I, I, I do not remember Party and Play, Stacy, but I feel like there's a reason that's not around anymore. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> That's, I don't remember that, though. Jurassic Park was the biggest film of the year, but other notables included 
Hocus Pocus. Hocus Pocus 2 came out and, today. And let me tell you, yeah. y'all, if, if yeah. I wasn't here and doing this like, with Don Palumbo oh. and hanging out with you guys, I would I would be at yes. home watching Hocus Pocus 2 yes. with Absolutely. the kids. I We'd might, be bundled I might up. watch it later. Yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah. All right. So also 93, Dazed and Confused, The Nightmare Before Christmas, Demolition Man, Wayne's World 2, True Romance, and Robin Hood Men in Tights. Great year for films. Robin Hood Men in Tights. One of my favorites. I can it's, quote it. It's probably a, an unattractive amount of times. And yeah. what were we listening to in 1993? Man, was it good. Gin and Juice, yes. Loser, Mr. Jones, Heart Shaped Box, oh Cream, Insane in the Brain, Ordinary World, and Shoop, Shoop, Doop. Oh, yeah. that is, and that, that's good. So many more. Also, Tag Team, Woomp, there it is. Okay, that's 93. Uh, tag stellar team year in, Stellar yeah, year in music. We're not oh, going to sing yeah. the hits for you tonight, okay? I would love to. But Maybe man, after. what a year. Yeah. 93. January 8th, 1993, it's nearly 11 p.m., and Manny Castro and his wife Epifania are worried. Their teenage son, Michael, whose shift ended at 9 p.m., didn't return home after work. Manny calls the restaurant, but the phone just rings and rings. Staying out this late was out of character for Michael, and not calling back to check in, out of line. Worried and restless, Manny goes looking for Michael. After all, Brown's Chicken and Pasta, where Michael works, is only five blocks away. Brown's Chicken is situated on the corner of Northwest Highway and Smith Street. It sits in the center of a parking lot on the edge of a strip mall-like shopping area. There's parking spaces on all four sides. The building is dark, and all is quiet when Manny pulls into the parking lot. But Michael's truck is still parked in the parking lot, along with several other vehicles but there's no sign of activity. Manny drives around the neighborhood, navigating the snow-plowed streets of Palatine, Illinois, scoping out other fast food places and local hangouts in hopes of finding his son. But as time ticks by, nothing. When the Castros get a call from the mother of Rico Solis, another Browns employee and Michael's friend, wondering if Rico is with Michael, the Castros become even more worried. Rico also didn't return home from work that night, and that young man had never been late to come home. The Solis family only relocated to the United States from the Philippines eight months prior. Rico's mother tried to file a missing persons report, but police told her he hadn't been missing long enough. When, I'm sorry to interject already, but when are, when are we going to figure that out? Like, I mean, I, I know we've gotten better, but yeah, no, not missing not, long enough. It's not real until yeah. it's 24 hours, I don't know. Manny Castro calls the police. They're also, but they're reluctant to share his concern. They say it's, well, it's Friday night. The Palatine High School versus Fremd Crosstown basketball game. There's teenagers everywhere. It's probably out at a party. But dispatchers agree to send a patrol car to check out the restaurant. It's sometime after midnight when the Castros drive back to Brown's Chicken. An officer is waiting in his squad car. He downplays their fears and suggests Michael is just being a typical teenager. In fact, this officer is not the first to stop at Brown's that evening. Earlier, police stopped a man who appears to be prowling outside the restaurant. The man is Pedro Maldonado. He's out looking for his brother, a newly hired Brown's cook, Guadalupe Maldonado. Pedro saw the old Cutlass Sierra that Guadalupe drove still parked outside along with four other vehicles. He walked around the building and pressed his face against the cold windows to peer inside. 
but there was only darkness, a frozen silence broken occasionally by the ringing telephone inside. As Maldonado turns to leave, he's confronted by an officer in a police cruiser. Maldonado explains himself, telling the cop his brother, Guadalupe, likes to be home in time to say goodnight to his three sons. He never missed tucking them in. Don't worry, the officer tells him. Maybe the employees went out for sandwiches or drinks. Or, or maybe he's missing. Maybe he's murdered. Well, maybe he's missing. But no, I'm it, sure it's just sandwiches and drinks. And Pedro tells him, he's like, look, Guadalupe doesn't drink. And his car is right there. And he never misses tucking his kids no, no, and no, something's no, no. up. It but was sandwiches listens. and drinks. It's fine. Yeah. Don't worry. Yep. The officer says, well, I'm sure Guadalupe will be home soon. Why don't you just go back home? For several hours, police and worried family members pass in and out of the Browns Chicken parking lot. Police claim to have checked the doors, confirming they were locked and there were no signs of trouble. Yet three employees are missing, or at the very least, not where they should be. Their vehicles ominously unmoved in the parking lot. Manny Castro files a missing person report at the Palatine Police Station. It's after 2 a.m. now, and Manny is not relenting in the search for his teenage son. Officer Conley meets him back at Brown's Chicken. It's now the fourth time Manny's been there, and this time he's determined to leave with answers. Officer Conley and Manny systematically work their way around the building, checking every door, looking into the windows. Finally, when Conley tugs the door handle of the green employee entrance, it swings wide open. Manny Castro eagerly steps forward. Looking over Conley's shoulder, he recognizes Michael's jacket. Castro wants to go inside, but Conley blocks the man. His eyes see something beyond the jacket, something dreadful. A few feet away, a massive pool of blood covers the brown tile floor in front of the freezer. Then, Conley clearly notices an arm is propping open the door and blood is pouring out from the freezer. Don't come in here. Something's up. This is a crime scene. Okay, hang on one second, though. But now it's a crime scene? And where, it, where are the sandwiches and drinks? Because, like, Not there. And was that, was that, the, same, was that the same cop that, that, that said that? That said, I, I, don't worry? I don't believe so. Oh, okay. All right. The interior is dimly lit. As Conley's eyes adjust, he observes a bloody mop leaned up against the wall. He calls for backup, and another officer arrives minutes later. They enter with guns drawn, flashlights in hand. Approaching the freezer, Conley sees it's not just an arm propping open the door. It's also a foot. When he swings the freezer door open, Officer Ron Conley is nearly brought to his knees by the horror inside. There are so many bodies, he can't tell how many victims are crumbled inside the freezer. It's a mass of humanity, one body on top of another, arms and legs on top of each other. It takes a moment for the men, both police veterans, to regain their composure and start to make sense of the macabre scene. Quote, we've got bodies in the cooler, leads the call that goes out seeking emergency assistance. In all, there are five dead bodies inside the freezer. Conley notices what appears to be vomited french fries on the ground. There's blood everywhere. All the victims have been shot in the head. They're riddled with bullets. Some appear to have stab wounds. The bodies are slouched and crowded together. 
Another call goes out. This time to the deputy, to the deputy police chief. It's from the sergeant on duty. His voice is shaking, emotional. I'm at the Browns chicken, boss, and we've got a bunch of dead people in the cooler. The deputy chief urges him to calm down. Oh no, wait. There are more dead people in the other cooler. Two more bodies are found in another cooler. Both victims have been shot in the head. Emergency crews already en route from the previous call are told to expect fatalities. The order is given to seal the crime scene. I mean, how murder is is one thing, obviously inhumane and, and everything, but to just be piled into a freezer, I mean, that, that's that's where it it even crosses another line. You know, it it, it takes away the dignity. It is uh, you know, beyond inhumane. It's a massacre at Brown's Chicken and Pasta. By 4 a.m., the parking lot is flooded with emergency personnel. By 5 a.m., a crowd is gathering outside, and the parking lot is packed with reporters, camera crews, and photographers. It's not quite sunrise. Reporters and emergency personnel aren't the only ones on scene. Families of the potential victims are scattered throughout the crowd. The The onlookers don't yet know the extent of the violence inside. A quiet murmur of information spreads across the parking lot of Brown's Chicken as friends and family fearfully share word of who might be inside the restaurant. With seven victims inside, it's not hard to envision how many people are packed in that parking lot. They're crying, they're praying, they're huddled together. This is a cold, cold day, wind-blowing January near Chicago. Some people are suggesting it must have been a robbery. Security was lax at the restaurant. The safe was clearly visible from the counter. And the process inside for investigators was the uh, safe was the safe open or, or uh, like or was not it, open, but it was clearly visible was right from there. the counter. If you okay. went up to order a chicken at the counter, you could see the safe. Mm-hmm. And no cameras. It's ninety three. So that's that's yeah, that's fair. Yeah. 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 And the process inside for investigators is extremely difficult. There's so much blood on the freezer floor, it's impossible to get to the victims without walking in it. Two of the victims lay face up, their eyes and mouths open and faces covered in blood. Detectives and paramedics cover their shoes with plastic boots, but it's slippery. Detectives move delicately so as to protect any forensic evidence on the scene. It's slow going, and minutes tick by like an eternity as family awaits word of their loved ones. The final body is not removed from the freezers until 7 p.m. that day. Right away that morning, Police Chief McGregor is calling all hands on deck. Scores of federal and local law enforcement are mobilized. It's a massive operation. Teams are assigned to crime scene processing, fielding tips, and interviewing witnesses. Others are given the grim task of delivering tragic news to the victims' families. A priest finds Pedro Maldonado in the crowd and asks Pedro to join him at the police station. Once there, the priest tells Pedro there was a murder and his brother, Guadalupe, one of the victims. Pedro has an emotional breakdown. He keeps asking why, but there are no answers. Pedro, then, must return home to tell his three nephews their father is dead. And they were hardworking immigrants who sought to work for their dreams in America. The Maldonado family relocated from Mexico just six years earlier in search of a better life. When sheriffs bring word to Evelyn Urgina, 
the mother of 17-year-old Rico Solis. It's just too much for her to bear. It brings back sad memories of Rico's father being stabbed to death five years earlier in the Philippines. Now she's lost her son. Oh, that poor woman. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah, it's brutal. Evelyn packs a few things, takes her daughters, and flees from it all. The reporters, the cops with their questions, the pain, it was all too much. The family never really returns to the suburb. In all, there are seven victims found in two locations inside the restaurant, the freezer and the cooler. Five in the freezer, two inside the cooler. The victims, Michael Castro, 16, of Palatine. He worked at the cash register alongside his classmate, Rico Solis. Castro aspired to join the Marines, and he put most of the money he earned at Brown's Chicken into his car. He was a fun, quiet kid, a great student, helpful and considerate of his neighbors and classmates. Guadalupe Maldonado, age 47, of Palatine. He was the fry fry cook who recently immigrated from Mexico, married with three sons, a loving father who never missed tucking his kids in. Thomas Menes, 32, of Palatine. He was the chicken. He was the chicken breader at Brown's, and survived by a twin brother named Jerry. Marcus Nelson, thirty-one of Palatine, the manager in training. Survived by a four-year-old daughter. Rico Solis, seventeen of Arlington Heights, a Philippine-born cashier. He worked the counter with his high school classmate Michael Castro, and his sister. 14-year-old Jade will forever remember that day when she saw him in the hallway that afternoon, but they both looked the other way because Big Brother Big Brother and Little Sister never talked in school. So Oh, that poor girl. She Of course she's not going to No, never, never, never. Oh. She'll spend the rest of her life thinking about that moment and regretting that she didn't just say hi to her brother. No, he knew she loved him. Oh gosh, that's the like that survivor's guilt or that, or not survivor's guilt. That's not what I mean. That's not correct. But just that, that guilt of not telling your loved one that you love them or said hello. I mean, just. It's important to point yeah. out because that, that sticks with her forever. Sure. You know? Yeah. The last two victims, Lynn Ellenfeld, 49 and 50 year old Richard Ellenfeld of Harlington, of Arlington Heights. The husband and wife were survived by three daughters. The couple recently invested their life savings, more than $300,000, into the Brown's Chicken franchise. It was very much a family business, a welcoming atmosphere to customers and employees. The Ellenfelts were well-known for working long 12- to 16-hour shifts. Now, this is a lot to unpack. Yeah, there's a lot, there's there's so, there are a lot of things. It's a lot to unpack, yeah. all right? So yeah. there are so many active layers of relevant activity that occur On that day of January 9th, police set up a command center organizing a task force that includes the FBI, Cook County Sheriff's Department, and the Northern Illinois Police Crime Lab. They begin forensic analysis of the crime scene. Tips and theories start pouring in from the public. They must interview family, neighbors, and witnesses. The task force is methodical. They get a list of every current and former employee, more than 300 names long. Every one of them will eventually be interviewed and fingerprinted. Some former employees will be pursued as far as Colorado. I mean, we're, that's, a, that's a lot of uh, police work. That's a, that is a lot of work. Instantly a lot of work. Right. I mean, so it, it, a lot. 300 names long, or at least. 
Investigators get a promising tip just before lunchtime. Former Browns employee, 23-year-old Martin Blake, was angry at the Ellenfelds after being fired. The tipsters claim Blake owns a 22 caliber pistol. The lead is taken very seriously. Undercover agents disguised as city water employees stake out Blake's house. He's arrested just before 3 p.m. Blake says he is innocent and he has an alibi. He was with friends drinking beer and watching movies. Martin Blake is questioned for hours at Palatine Police Station while police work to verify his alibi. Okay, hold on. So he was he was arrested? Yeah. Like, arrested? Not Same even brought day. In, not even brought in for arrested. questioning, just straight up arrested? Straight up arrested. Right away at 3 p.m. arrested. That's... They raided his house. He was working on his truck in front of his house. The hood was still open. And, well, there's a tremendous amount of pressure on law enforcement. By Monday, January 11th, Martin Blake is released. Hood still open on his vehicle when he gets back home. Officers, intent on helping Martin Blake avoid the flock of media outside, they sneak him out the back door. Cook County State's Attorney Jack O'Malley puts it into words at a press conference late that Monday afternoon. Quote, We are not in a position to reassure this community. There is a murderer or murderers on the loose. So he basically could have just said, panic, exclamation point, panic, panic, panic. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, and to some extent they did. People are buying guns. People are, are arming up. Security's getting ramped up everywhere. I mean, don't get me wrong. There are seven people. Yeah. I, I mean, seven victims. I, I, I get it. But, you know, holy shit, you know, bar the doors. They're, the they're friend, coming for you. The forensic team, working day and night through the weekend, collected an abundance of trace evidence. Bullets are recovered from inside the walls of the freezer. Ballistics eventually determines the shots came from either a 38 or 357. In all, more than 20 bullets were fired into the victims. A streak of blood across the floor indicates at least one body was dragged into the cooler. The mop was used to clean up some of the blood. Hairs, fibers, and eventually 200 fingerprints were lifted from objects in the restaurant. Why the attempt to clean up some of the blood? It's a fair question. I'm thinking with all that blood, footprints would be sure. maybe the, that would be my only potential thought. And then at some point, just knowing that there's a lot there, ah, fuck it, it'll and be fine. If, if, the blood was, if the blood could be seen maybe from the front window and you want to sure. mop that up so people yeah. can't see it looking in, because obviously people approached this restaurant when these dead bodies were inside and it looked like nothing happened. So if some of that blood was maybe pushing out into the front area where people could see it through the window, that would be the other possible. I mean, I feel like at 11 a.m. the next morning when, you know, people showed up, I think it's going to well, be It was 3.30 a.m. when they got there. Right, I know, there, but, but yeah. if, if you're hiding the blood in the front area, it's like somebody's going to show up at 11 a.m. anyway and want, want something to eat. So, I mean, but good job hiding it, I guess. Yeah, on... Tuesday. Wait, One more question. I'm sure. sorry. I'm interrupting a lot. No, no, um, apologize. Do we know about what time they suspected this happened? Or, or well, are you remember, my, Michael's shift ended at nine yeah. and they didn't come home. So everybody's shift ended at nine. That's when they didn't come home. So that's when people got alerted. So, but that's, so somewhere that's maybe they... near that time. Okay. On Tuesday, January 12th, forensic specialist Dr. Jane Homeyer focused on the last meal ordered the night of the murders. That hunch led her to the garbage cans. All of them had fresh, new 
trash liners. In fact, all the closing procedures at Brown's Chicken that night were completed and the restaurant nearly spotless. The closing register was actually reopened at 9.08 p.m. to take one final order. So I could have kept my mouth shut for like another 15 seconds and I would have found out. <laughs> okay, noted. Yeah. Homeyer leans in on the hunch. Looking inside each of the trash cans, she eventually finds what appears to be the remains of the exact same meal that was ordered at 9.08 p.m. Chicken wings, coleslaw, fries, a biscuit, the cardboard tray it's served on, and some napkins. It practically looks fresh. In a moment, Dr. Homeyer later attributed to divine providence, she seals the meal and stores it in a freezer. A clock stopped at 9.52 p.m. in the restaurant showed when the killers cut the power and presumably left police, and presumably left. Police theorize that in 44 minutes, the murders were done and the killers gone. And storing... The meal is a genius move by Dr. Homeyer. However, it's 1993 and DNA evidence has yet to be effectively implemented as a means of identification. It is still in the very, very early stages. It's considered practically experimental at this point. She just heard about it in lectures, right? The chicken meal does little to immediately help the investigation, although a palm print was lifted from the napkin and added to evidence. There are so many tips coming in. Law enforcement is drowning in information. People call, wanting to share their visions. Several others attempt to implicate ex-lovers. Ten more FBI agents show up with ten more laptops and a new software prototype called Rapid Start. It's designed to help leads be entered, analyzed, and retrieved more efficiently. It's the first time Rapid Start was ever used in an investigation. The information is disseminated by the next day. It's helpful, but it doesn't bring detectives any closer to solving the Browns Chicken Massacre. The days give way to weeks. A panic spreads through the Chicago suburbs. People are fearful of copycat attacks. Businesses ramp up security. Many hire armed guards. And police host free defense and security seminars but they're scarcely attended. Ballistics confirms just one gun was used in the killings and the likely weapon, a 38 or 357 revolver, which meant it was reloaded at least three times. An FBI profiler suggests that lack of planning indicates disorganized killers between the ages of 20 and 25. There's a strong belief within the investigation that their suspects were former employees. The investigation gives a long look at several of the employees who were originally scheduled to work that Friday night, but for various reasons, they all ended up with the night off. 17-year-old Casey Sander switched shifts with Rico Solis at the last minute. She was supposed to work that night, but Rico took her shift to make extra money. Casey told police she stopped at the restaurant earlier in the evening, picked up her paycheck, and then just drove around the rest of the night with her boyfriend. Interrogators pressure Casey to implicate her boyfriend. She refuses. Okay, I mean, did they have reason or 
their their uh, reason I mean, was I mean, well, and, and, it's just you and him, and and it's investigation. Yeah. I mean, don't, of course, I mean, that's just that's how it works. But I get the pressure it, but, for sure. Yeah. Over 100 law enforcement specialists, including 24 full-time investigators from a dozen agencies, worked the case around the clock. The effort they put in cannot be overstated. There were 240 pieces of evidence examined, 3,000 phone tips fielded, 1,000 leads pursued, and over 1,600 hours of crime lab time is used in this investigation. There was so much evidence, it filled a classroom. Yeah. I mean, it's got, it's got to be absolutely unbelievable. I mean, with just with one victim, it's a lot, you know, and then you multiply it by seven. The weeks give way to months and every lead is chased down. The automated fingerprint identification system matches a fingerprint and police bring the man in, keep him for three days before clearing his, his alibi. A jail informant implicates Chicago gang leader, Jose Morales, Morales Cruz. The information is mildly corroborated when a Brown's Chicken employee identifies a gang member that was in the restaurant earlier that night. Furthermore, another witness claims she overheard gang members discussing the murders while at a car wash, but the lead eventually fizzles. Although the informant was later, air quotes, suicided in prison. One detective is so heated about how the lead is handled, he blows up and gets dismissed from the investigation. The months give way to years, and the case goes unsolved. Police face widespread criticism. Casey Sanders is brought in by investigators for questioning at least once each year, and she spends years suffering from survivor's guilt. In a recurring dream, Casey's working the register at Brown's Chicken and watches the killer shoot her co-workers. And when he gets to Casey and points the gun at her, she wakes up. Survivor's guilt develops in people who have survived a life-threatening situation. Some survivors feel guilty that they survived when others died. Others believe they could have done more to save the lives of those who died. And then there are those who feel guilty that another person died saving them. And I want to note here as well that Casey is one of several people who are brought in and questioned slash harassed for hours on end, year after year. Martin Blake sues Palatine for damaging his home during their arrest, as well as for violating his civil rights. Blake settles for $8,000. The ongoing pressure related to being falsely implicated ultimately pushes Blake out of the community. He relocates to Texas. Manny Castro and Evelyn Urgina, the parents of victims Michael and Rico, sue the Brown's Chicken franchise and its president, Frank Portillo, claiming the company didn't do enough to protect its employees. The lawsuit is eventually dismissed. Brown's Chicken president, Frank Portillo, is absolutely heartbroken. He rushed to the scene and stood in the cold with families the day of the killings. Frank always recognized that whatever he felt, whatever he had to endure, was nothing compared to what the victims' families went through. Frank Portillo, while coping with the murders, was still responsible for a popular restaurant chain with more than 300 locations. So Brown's Chicken, a big deal at this time. Following the murders, Brown's Chicken went into financial freefall, dropping 30% in sales each year. Now, I want to emphasize again that a company losing sales is vastly secondary to the lives that were lost, but this is worth pointing out. 
Brown's Chicken started from a single restaurant opened in 1949 by John Brown. He partnered with Portillo and started franchising in 1965 through painstaking hard work. And with the help of delicious fried chicken, the business boomed, employing more than 3,000 people across 13 states by the time of the murders. Many of those restaurants, now struggling after the murders, were franchisees aspiring to more, just like the Ellenfelts, mom-and-pop shops that were family-owned and operated. Crisis communications experts and major vendors urged Portillo to change the name because they thought it would turn around the business, but he felt it would dishonor his late partner, John Brown, who passed away several months before the murders. Well, and Portillo is, I mean, he's no spring chicken if they've been in the business for 30 years. I mean, he's got to be a bit older. He he was younger than the older man. So I think the older man kind of started it. And I think Portillo sort of came in with uh, like a big marketing vision and helped it, helped it grow. It's it's really a, a brilliant story in and of itself of individual and personal success. The three Ellenfelt daughters, the youngest was then 18, were pushed into financial as well as emotional turmoil after becoming orphaned by their parents' murders. In 1995, the daughters agreed to pay $57,000 to settle their parents' estate with the building's owner. John Gregornik sued the daughters seven months after the slayings, accusing them of breaching the parents' lease by not reopening the restaurant after the murders. Who the hell is this guy? Feels like a new villain just entered the story. Are you serious? Like he actually sued, yes. sued the murdered parents' children? Yes. Yes, he really did. And Don, let me tell you, he sued them for $655,581 in back rent and other costs. I mean, can't you just like let it go? It's, I mean, it seems like a dick move, man. It really does. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, it, this is America and it's a business and capitalism and all that good stuff. But man, it's just, just cut, just cut your losses, on. bro. Let them cut away and go do something else with your building. He was like, well, I don't want to get stuck with the murder building. But that's exactly it. Of course He's it was. Exactly. Oh, my gosh. Dickhead. This guy sucks. What happens oh, yeah. to him? Well, now obviously, it's, it's so obvious that you can't reopen this restaurant with a specter of death hanging above it. No. It's absurd. The legal, the legal bills and outstanding debts left the daughters with little inheritance and their parents' life savings. The 300000 they pumped into the franchise was never recovered. Motivated by the Browns workers' deaths, Frank Portillo became vice president of the Chicago Crime Commission. That group joins with the Better Government Association and, in 1997, issues a report critical of the Palatine Murder Task Force. In reply, the Illinois State Crime Commission wrote a report praising the Palatine investigation. Wait, wait, wait. Okay, hang on. Yep. So Portillo becomes vice president of the Chicago Crime Commission. Correct. And they're, you They know, join with the Better Government Association. Right, and saying you guys did a horrible job. Yep. But then the Illinois, so state the state crime, crime yep. commission says, no, 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 you guys did great. Yep. Okay. Mixed signals. I mean, and again, the police were under so much pressure. It's 1997 now. These, are, these murders are four years old. Right. In and, 1998. And, and the state's attorney is still saying, oh my gosh, panic. Yeah. Yeah. In 1998, Police interrogators pressured a man by the name of John Simonek into a confession. 
Simonek was formerly best friends with the boyfriend of employee Casey Sanders. John suggests he was not the primary killer and was shocked when Casey's boyfriend started killing people. He reveals unshared details from the crime scene in his confession, such as a bullet that strikes a frying pan and shooting through the plastic barrier in the freezer. No arrest is made. In 1999, this is one year later, after an eight-hour interrogation, Casey Sanders breaks under police pressure and confesses that she was there when her boyfriend opened fire. No arrest was made. But they arrest they arrest the the first guy. Oh yeah, they were just, eager beavers back then. But in '99, eh, we're not panicking anymore. It's fine. We're just we're gonna she crumbles and crumbles. It's fine. Now we'll, we'll get him in ten years. In Casey's defense, <clears throat> over this period of time, she was brought in two dozen times for questioning. Eventually, she got she has to get a lawyer over the police harassment. Sure. And, and so right. here's here's the kicker, Don, is the confessions were blatantly coerced and with no physical evidence connecting any of these people to the crime scene, the DA is unwilling to file charges. A sergeant later confesses to the coercions. I bet that guy feels like a piece of shit. (laughs) (sighs) Through community efforts and donations, the reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the Brown's chicken killers exceeds $100,000. In 2001, the Brown's chicken building was raised and became a parking lot. Nearly 10 years pass from the day of the murders. Guadalupe's family has returned to Mexico. Many of the others have left the suburb of Palatine. Michael Castro's sister is a mother. Rico's sister is married. Their lives have painstakingly moved forward, but their thoughts never moved on from the painful mystery. In March of 2002, a female witness contacts the Palatine Police Department to tell them she has information about the murders at Brown's Chicken. The caller explains that her friend, a woman by the name of Ann Lockett, has intimate details about the murder and that Ann Lockett knows exactly who did it. It's the most relevant lead in years. Sergeant Bill King makes contact with Ann Lockett by telephone and eventually she shares her story for the very first time. In January of 1993, Ann Lockett was in the hospital after a failed suicide attempt. According to Lockett, she received a phone call from James Degorski on Saturday, January 9th. He told her, make sure you watch the news tonight. I did something big. The lead story that evening, the Brown's Chicken Massacre. On January 25th, 1993, after Ann Lockett was released from the hospital, she met up with James Degorski and another man, Juan Luna, at Degorski's house. Ann knew these men for quite some time. According to Lockett, she and Degorski dated off and on and were dating at the time of the murders. The three partied and did drugs together. Lockett attended high school with Juan Luna, but he gave her the heebie-jeebies. The men asked Lockett if she wanted to know the real story of what happened at Brown's Chicken. During the story, 
the men tell Lockett that another of their mutual friends served as an alibi, Eileen Bacala, and Eileen unknowingly picked the killers up after their horrific crime was complete. Finally, when their story was done, Degorski told Lockett that he would kill her and her entire family if she ever told anyone. Sergeant King located Juan Luna. Juan Luna was now married with a four-year-old son living and working in Carpentersville, Illinois. In an interview at his home on April 3rd, Juan Luna agreed to a DNA swab but denied any involvement in the killings. So too did James Degorski when investigators interviewed him at the Palatine police station on April 27th. Degorski also agreed to fingerprinting and a DNA swab. On May 7th, 2002, Juan Luna's DNA came back as a match with DNA recovered from the order of chicken at the crime scene. There was no match with Degorski's DNA. Police arrest both men on May 16th, 2002. Once at the station, Luna waves his Miranda rights and gives a chilling videotaped confession of the murders. Degorski and Luna chose Brown's Chicken because Juan Luna, a former Brown's employee, not only knew the restaurant's layout, but also that the security was lax, that the owners didn't carry a gun, and that there'd be lots of money and very few people on a Friday night. Driving Luna's Ford Tempo, the men parked on the building's north side. After watching the final customer leave, a woman with two disabled kids, the men made their move. Before entering the restaurant, they put a wedge under the employee door so no one could escape and walked in a weird way so that they wouldn't leave traceable footprints in the snow. Luna covered his hand with a sweatshirt to open the entry door, made his way to the counter, and ordered a four-piece chicken meal. Lynn Ellenfeld seemed to vaguely recognize Luna, the men sat in a booth near a trash can. Degorski was mad at Luna for ordering the meal, concerned he'd leave chicken grease fingerprints all over. Well, maybe he should have paid attention. Well, it wasn't the fingerprints, was it? That it was, was the home? DNA. Oh, it, it was, was the DNA. DNA eating the chicken. Luna quickly scarfed the chicken, tossed it in the trash, and the men went into the bathroom. I mean, it was also the palm print, but it was the I DNA mean, first. That was what they got him on. Greasy chicken fingerprints, I get it. I, I mean... Once in the bathroom, here, put these on, Degorski told Luna, handing him a pair of rubber gloves. They exit the bathroom. Rico Solis is standing there with a mop. Get in the kitchen right now. Solis was shocked. He tried giving them money. Degorski fired a warning shot into the ceiling and announced the robbery. People are moving. Chicken breader Thomas Menez runs toward the employee exit, but the door won't open. When the door doesn't open... Menez vaults over the counter toward the front door. Bam! Degorski shoots him in the back. Menez falls to the ground, crying in pain. Oh my God, I've been shot. I've been shot. People are crying. The Ellenfelds plead with the robbers to just take the money, to not hurt anyone. Degorski directs Richard Ellenfeld to the back cooler. He drags Menez back there and orders the men to face the wall. Bam! Bam! Degorski executes them both with a shot to the back of the head. 
Luna and Degorski start heading, start hurting the other employees into the freezer. They're begging, please don't do this. Please don't kill us. Rico Solis, Michael Castro, and Guadalupe Maldonado are pushed into the freezer. Guadalupe is praying. Assistant manager Marcus Nelson tries to escape, but Luna blocks him with a karate stance. Degorski steps forward and smashes Nelson on the forehead with the butt of the revolver, cracking the man's skull. Nelson is instantly wobbly and nearly loses consciousness. Quote, he went into the freezer pretty easy then. In the confession, Luna claims Degorski handed him a pocket knife. He then grabbed Lynn Ellenfelt, threw her to the floor, demanding, open the safe. Lynn's hands were shaking, but she manages to get the safe open and start pleading for her life. Degorski starts firing bullets into the freezer. Quote, with everybody going all wild and crazy, I guess I just got caught up in it and cut her throat, says Luna, making a slashing motion across his neck with a pen. He cut a gash five and a half inches deep. Quote, she was laying on the floor. She started gurgling and ran out of breath. Degorski dragged Lynn's body to the freezer, leaving a massive trail of blood. He starts mopping while Luna stands guard with the revolver. Luna fires a warning shot. They were yelling, Please don't shoot us! Don't shoot us! Their hands were shaking, too. Then, Degorski took the gun and fired into the freezer until it was empty, reloaded, and emptied the thirty-eight revolver a second time. Maldonado was shot three times, including two to his head and one to his hand. Castro took the most bullets, six, including one to his palm. Rico Solis vomited french fries after taking the first bullet. Another shot in the head took his life. As Luna went to flip the circuit breaker, Degorski kicked the bodies, beat them with the broom, and stabbed them to make sure they were dead. Hastily, the killers wiped any countertop surfaces they might have touched, used the mop to cover footprints, changed out of their murder clothes, took the wedge, and left the building. Juan Luna was shaking so bad he couldn't drive. Degorski took the wheel and drove them to Jules' parking lot, where Degorski previously arranged for Eileen Bacala to meet them. Luna says he wasn't with Degorski when his friend got rid of the knife and gun used in the murders. He assumed Degorski had disposed of both weapons. According to Luna, they went to Bacala's house. She asked about the money. They told her it was a robbery at Brown's Chicken. After relaxing for a few hours and smoking some weed, the men split the money and Bacala brought Juan back to his vehicle. And then she brought Degorski home. Things moved pretty fast after that. In Luna's confession, he essentially paints himself as a somewhat surprised accomplice that Degorski went crazy and just started killing people. According to investigators, in Degorski's confession, which was not videotaped and was taken by Sergeant King, Degorski says Luna was the one who went crazy, claiming to have only killed two of the victims. Degorski says Luna brought a brass knuckle knife. The gun and knife were later thrown into the Fox River. The other items were sealed in a trash bag and thrown into a dumpster, which they all did together. When King asks Degorski for a video confession, Degorski asks for a lawyer. Oh, and get this, Don. Juan Luna, as an ex-employee, was brought in for questioning in the months following the murders. 
His original alibi was that he spent the evening with his girlfriend, Eileen Bacala. The officer who interviewed him got his fingerprints, but didn't get his palm prints. Luna's alibi checked out, and the investigation moved on from him without a second well, thought. Hang on. When you're, when, you are, uh, when you're fingerprinted for an arrest, you don't do your palm prints. I right. Mean, so it wasn't standard procedure. No, 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 no. Fair. No. In the days following his arrest, Degorski is viciously assaulted by a sheriff. He's hospitalized with head trauma and a broken jaw. After his arrest in 2002, Luna's palm print is finally matched to the same one taken from the napkin at the crime scene. There was no physical evidence linking James Degorski to the crime scene. Now, you might think that since we got a confession here, there wouldn't be a trial. Wrong. Juan Luna is first to trial, and he pleads not guilty. His defense claims the confession was a Fifth Amendment fairy tale and that other men have already confessed to the crime scene. Highlights and lowlights from the Juan Luna trial. Luna's DNA and palm print are confirmed at the scene. The defense tries to establish doubt and controversy over the DNA evidence because it's just sort of making its way into trials more often now. Bacala and Lockett both testify for the prosecution. The defense attempts to undermine the women's credibility due to a history of substance abuse, lies, thefts, and a lot of convenient truths between their two stories. In Bacala's story, she claims Degorski called her at work before she got off at 9.30. Also in Luna's trial, the false confessions by Simonek are brought up. The defense alleges they were true confessions and that Simonek shared unreleased details, but police take the stand and admit the confession was coerced. Luna also claimed in the end he told detectives whatever they wanted because they were threatening to deport his wife and child. The daughter of the restaurant's slain owners, Joy Ellenfelt, addressed Luna in her victim impact statement at trial, quote, you are responsible for your own family's suffering. Your family will now join ours in the circle of grief. Hang on. It, it, how much money did they get? Did they ever say? Who? Luna and the other guy. Good question. 1800 bucks. Yep. 1800 yeah. Not Not that... No. Hang on. I'm going to time out for a anything, second. No. Not that any amount is worth seven lives. No, but, one life. No, it's I not. mean, but... but Really? Yeah, that's what I mean, they got. I mean, you could have just robbed them. Yeah. It, it wow. should have just been a robbery or nothing. It should have been nothing. Yeah, get, I mean, a jo- get a job, you, you know, bum. Don't break the law. I mean, but... On wow. Thursday, May 10th, 2007, after about eight hours of deliberation, the jury finds Juan Luna guilty for seven counts of murder, each carrying a mandatory life sentence. They were also faced with the choice of whether he should get the death penalty, but only nine of 12 jurors approved, and of course it had to be unanimous. It's an emotional moment for victims' families who had to relive the horrors of what happened to their loved ones as the trial played out. The first step in closing the bloodiest chapter in Palatine history was now complete, but prosecuting James Degorski wouldn't be a walk in the park. It's September 2009 by the time he goes to trial. Highlights and lowlights from the Degorski trial. As we already know, 
Police claimed Degorski confessed, but it wasn't on video. So in trial, the defense alleges it never happened, and anything Degorski might have said was a false or coerced confession. A detail from Degorski's confession to Sergeant King was that he watched a lady with, quote, two crippled kids leave the restaurant and get loaded into a van. They were the last customers. That lady was Deborah Mito, and she testified for the prosecution that she was indeed at Brown's that night, left at closing with two men in wheelchairs. Matt Wisentech testified that he sold a stolen 38 caliber revolver and a box of round-nosed bullets to James Degorski in 1992. Medical technician Alicia Hines testified that she spoke with Degorski on May 19, 2002, after he suffered the broken jaw while in custody. And Hines asked him how he could kill seven people and whether he had been drunk or high at the time. According to her, Degorski said he was sober and the murders were, quote, just for fun. Anne England, now that she's formerly Anne Lockett, she's married by now, but we're going to just Anne Lockett, and, quote. And she was the one that had was been in the in hospital for suicide, okay. yep, yep, for a suicide attempt. Quote, they did it because Juan wanted to see what it was like to kill someone and Jim agreed to help. She testified that she kept silent because they threatened to kill her. And Quote, I was very afraid that he was going to kill me. Seven people were already gone. What's one more? Eileen Bacala claims she gave Degorski a ride home after dropping Juan at his vehicle. And on the way to dropping him off, they just so happened to drive by Brown's Chicken to see all the commotion, at which point Degorski told her they, quote, did something big, and then he confessed to her. Bacala and Degorski were lovers off and on since the time of the murders. She mostly spoke well of him in trial. They were even on a recent vacation getaway with another couple just a few months prior to Degorski's arrest. The defense rolls out a Degorski ex-girlfriend, Jennifer Peters. She testifies that Degorski is a good, nonviolent man who never, ever did anything violent or angry in her presence in the years they dated. Several other character witnesses back her up and say the picture painted of Degorski is disgusting and inaccurate. More than 50 fingerprints found at the scene remain unidentified. None of them match Degorski. Two additional DNA profiles were found, but never matched to anyone. Also, false confessions. They brought up that two people testified police pressured them into making false confessions, and defense lawyers argued the same thing happened to Degorski. But couldn't it be argued the other way, where they're going to be so damn careful? For sure. Yeah, it's, it's weird how, but that's why you just don't I mean, do it. I, just, just don't do it. Well, yeah. You don't, you don't leave it to doubt. Lastly... In what I can only believe was an effort to help Degorski be spared the death penalty on the back end should he be found guilty, the defense brought forth witnesses who testified of a dark and terrible childhood for James Degorski. According to testimony, his father, a Vietnam vet, was a violent, abusive, sexually perverted alcoholic. Abuse on all levels were a regular occurrence of Degorski's upbringing. 
Degorski himself refused to speak of any of it. The claims came from his mother and former counselors. Also, the detail of the fries being vomited was a key aspect of the witness statements from Bacala and Lockett because that detail was never made public. Jurors found Degorski guilty for seven counts of first-degree murder, the same as Juan Luna, in October of 2009. It took them only 90 minutes to reach that verdict. Degorski never stopped maintaining his innocence. In March of 2014, a jury awarded James Degorski $451,000 in compensation and punitive damages for the assault from the sheriff's deputy. A judge later pressed that down to like 120 k and then they said they were going to find ways to give it to the victims, and they hope he never sees a dime of it. But, of course, you know, he suffered those facial fractures that required surgery. Well, that they, deputy and was then, fired. And that shouldn't have been done. I, I mean, agree. It's, I agree. By the time yeah. the second trial is said and done. Hang on. The abuse, the, yeah, the, yeah, the assault sure. shouldn't have yeah, happened. Yeah. I mean, the guy was, that's what I. Right. I just wanted to clarify. That was too much clarification. I'm with you. But sorry. I'd yeah. rather be over-clarified than under-clarified. <laughs> you know how yeah. I roll. Yeah. I'd rather I, over-explain. Oh, yeah. I know how you I want. I you know, it's weird that I like to over-explain things, but I don't read the instructions for anything. <laughs> <laughs> like, what is wrong with me? <laughs> By the time the second trial is said and done, Brown's Chicken is down to just 23 restaurants and only a few hundred employees. 300 stores, 3,000 employees. So, you know, it's important to recognize that it's the victims first here, but the devastation of this murder and its ripple effect hit so many people. How many entrepreneurs, how many business owners, how many mom and pop shops struggled and went under because of this? And it's, it's sure. man, I, I met two people from Chicago a week ago and I, I was in the pro, you know, week maybe two and I was researching this case and I wasn't fully there yet, but I just asked them. I said, wait, well, hey, do you guys ever eat at Brown's chicken? And he's like, oh, hell no. And I just said, well, why not? He said, well, I don't want to get murdered. And it's 2022. Okay. And, and I was like, well, do you know what, do you know, do you know what happened there at Brown's chicken? And he's like, no, it, it just, you know, he's like, it's just one of those stories if you live in that Chicago area, you've heard of this and you know, and it's just, it's, 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 it's like a thing of legend in 2022. So, uh, and, and then the oldest daughter, um, Schill, Jennifer Schilling of the Ellenfelts actually went on to become a senator in Wisconsin. And she's a Democrat and she is currently or was the Senate minority leader. So a, a real position of political prominence in the state of Wisconsin. Sure, yeah. So, Degorski trial, what do you think? Well, I mean, what do you want me to think here? I, I, I feel I, like you're I setting just, me up for something. I'm, okay, well, let me ask you something. All right, let me, I'll just ask, I'll, let me ask you something. If any of the witnesses who testified against James Degorski were due reward money exceeding $100,000 in the event of his conviction, does that make a big difference to your feelings about their testimony? And should the jury be made aware of that? Why? You could make a career out of testifying against people then. If it, over $100,000 each witness? Over a hundred. There was reward money of over $100,000. 
So, so if there was any so, witnesses so do they, that money, do you no, think that... witnesses, so if somebody came forward and offered information that led to his arrest or this person's arrest, or was it, here, we're going to pay you for testifying against them? It means guy. that you are a witness in this trial, and should this man be convicted based on your testimony, you are due reward money. Not that you've been paid to testify, but your conviction, I mean, should, it, should your testimony lead to a conviction, you got a hundred grand sitting there waiting for you. Now, do you think at the very least the jury should be made aware of that? Is that worthy of the jury to know that information? On the I spot. Feel, I feel like yes. The jury I should feel be, like yes. The, the jury should what, be made I mean, aware what do you of it. Should the jury know about that shit? Like, I, yeah. I, I kind of thought so. Well, so, and, and because it, it definitely brings in like a big, big question mark. A lot of times in trial, if there is some sort of extenuating circumstance about a witness, the jury will be instructed to, hey, I forget the terminology, but it's like, hey, take what they're about to say with a grain of salt here because they're going to catch 50 grand on the backside if this leads to a conviction. The jury was never made aware of that. Well, and so, why, even, why even allow, why even allow There was that? reward money raised by the community that if, if, if somebody got convicted, there's reward money sitting there. Degorski's appeal was picked up by heavy-hitting attorney Jennifer Bonjean in 2014. Her law firm has helped overturn numerous wrongful convictions. They particularly focus on exposing crooked crooked cops and a broken judicial system. She files a compelling 88-page appeal detailing widespread ineptitude by Degorski's lawyer that failed to achieve an objective standard of reasonableness as well as numerous Sixth Amendment violations, and withholding of critically relevant information to the jury. Now, here's some of it, and take this for what you will. She presents timeline problems. Degorski could not have called Bacala at work for the ride that she claims because he would have been at Brown's Chicken at the time the murders were happening when that call was allegedly made. There was no such record of a call coming from Brown's. Also, that Ann Lockett is a con artist with an extensive history of lying, stealing, lack of empathy, blame projection, and selfish, rebellious behavior. Lockett lied when she claimed to be Degorski's girlfriend at the time of the murders. She testified for the reward money. And there's also evidence Lockett tried to blame at least one previous ex-boyfriend, a man by the name of Richard Billick. Billick says he was Lockett's boyfriend at the time of the killings. Degorski and Lockett weren't dating then. A few months after the murders, Lockett called Billick asking him if he knew anything about the murders because there's a reward. And, well, gee, if you hear anything about the murders, why don't you just let me know right away? Following that phone call, Billick was brought in and questioned by investigators three separate times. In Degorski's defense, Billick was never called by his attorney. Additional DNA and fingerprints found on scene were never identified and are not Degorski's. And of course, there's no physical evidence of Degorski having ever been on scene. And according to two eyewitnesses from the hospital psych ward, Ann Lockett did not 
have access to a phone at the time she claims to have received the call from Degorsky. Non-family members weren't even allowed to call patients. And finally, that she didn't even watch the news that night because people on Suicide Watch didn't get TV access. Okay, hang on. I'm going I'm to poke holes in that one because... In, it's in, in the appeal. Yeah. In, in policy and procedure... Uh, I mean, we wouldn't we wouldn't be here right now if everybody followed policy and procedure. Of course. Okay. So, the fact that you no, know, she didn't have access to a phone. Okay. I mean, absolutely, I would have put it in my appeal too if if I lawyered things. But I, I mean, eh, I don't know. The medical technician Alicia Hines never reported Degorsky's alleged confession until years later when she was interviewed in reference to the jail assault. She conveniently revealed that new detail. Which is also very, very unprofessional of her to do during her job. To reveal that detail no, 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 or to no, no, ask no. him that? Like, well, why well, are you asking it, him that? Like, what is wrong with It casts a lot of doubt on whether or not it really even happened. Right, right. Um, especially, especially if she was paid for it. I'm, I'm sorry. She was not one of them who was oh, going wasn't. to be paid. Oh, it was okay. Lockett and Lockett. And Lockett's friend who oh, convinced okay. her to talk to the police. Okay. And Lockett's friend had a bunch of buddies at the Palatine Police Department, too. So it all helped push it forward, which they bring up in the appeal. Degorski's lawyer also refused to allow him to testify and failed to call numerous critical witnesses. Finally, Degorski claims to have never willingly participated in any confession. And he was repeatedly denied a lawyer, threatened, forced to stay awake in the interrogation room, and ultimately pressured into a sleep-deprived, scared, and coerced confession after hours of grueling pressure and abuse. None of, none, of his, none of his interrogation was videotaped or recorded, even though the equipment was readily available, and the interrogator destroyed all of his notes after writing the report of Degorski's confession. Oh, okay. The videotape, the recording, whatever. I mean... Sometimes that shit didn't happen, especially, I mean, we're talking, what, 2003? That was 02. 02. Yeah. Yep. I, I mean, come on. Destroying your notes. Shame, shame, sir. You know yeah. better than that. You keep that shit. Evidently, that was just the company policy back then, to destroy your notes, which See? they they got rid of that procedure. Yeah. The appeal was denied in 2018. Bon Jean claims to, she's going to push it all the way to the Supreme Court. Degorski also makes a number of fascinating claims on his personal website. And here's some of what I found interesting from that. Degorski had a full-time job at the time of the murders, and he sold marijuana on the side. He had, no, he had no need to get money through robbery, and there's no history of violence in his life. Luna was broke all the time and hated the Ellenfelts for firing him. Luna's Ford Tempo was already parked at the meetup spot because Degorski borrowed it earlier in the day after Luna left it at his shop where he worked. According to Degorski, he used it to sell weed that day and he was already with Bacala when they met Luna together that night in the parking lot. Luna got dropped off by someone in a white car and nothing about the night seemed out of the ordinary when him and Bacala picked up Luna, the three partied together like any regular night. Bacala was in trouble for other drug-related charges, and she was an angry ex-girlfriend, and he says her story is a logistically illogical lie. First, if he called, if he called her at work, 
It would have to have been from Brown's chicken, but no such call exists on their phone records. Next, the part where she claims to have given Dagorski a ride home doesn't make any sense. Juan lived just a mile from Dagorski. That's who gave James a ride home that night. It didn't make sense for her to give him a ride when Juan was heading that way in the direction he lived. Additionally, Brown's chicken was not on the way to his house. It wouldn't even have made sense for them to drive past Brown's when she took him home that night. And the prosecution also kept going back to the alleged something big quote from Degorski. And according to Degorski and every one of his longtime friends, he never uses that phrase ever. None of them have ever heard him say that. Okay. Is that like the Heather's defense? You know, like I don't have no idea. When, in, in That's just what's there. In I Heather's thought- suicide note when she uses, you know, when, and Christian Slater is like, you know, it's a myriad of problems. And she's like, no, Heather would never say that. She, you know, she spelled it wrong on the spelling test and they bring it up later. It, I mean, come on. That I mean, I get it. You those put, are the you aspects I found interesting. You put yeah. absolutely everything in the defense or in the in the uh, appeal, but don't be dumb. You can learn more details about Dagorski's claims of innocence at jamesdagorski.com. and the full Bonjean appeal, eighty-eight pages long, is out there. It's a ton of information. So. Hmm. What do you do? You think Dagorski? Does it feel weird that he got convicted with? There's, new, there's these numerous coerced confessions, no physical evidence tying to them. Uh, I, I don't know. Like Some of the logic leaps on some of these witness statements is about him made me feel uncomfortable. And even as I was researching it, that phone call kept jumping out to me. That was the first thing. I was like, so what? He, he, just, he called them at 920 while people were getting murdered in the background or while somebody was mopping up blood. He ma- but that call never made sense to me, but it was allowed to stand. So Yeah, I, I don't know. I, the... That Juan guy, I mean, he feels... Juan's guilty he, he, as hell. He feels super icky. Juan is super guilty. Yeah. I'm not confident. Did, I, I'm not 100% confident Dagorski is guilty, is all I'm no, going to say. I'm I, not 100% confident. I would agree with that. I would, I would agree with that. as best as I can say it. There's, there are definitely there's a some, lot more out there. It, it, it's Swiss cheesy. There's some, there's some holes, for sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. You guys, that, that was not funny. Like, yes, was, it was. Oh, okay. Okay, tell us your sources. Sources for tonight's episode, the Daily Herald articles by Barbara Vitello, Joseph Ryan, Stacey St. Clair, and Todd Nattenberg from the Chicago Tribune, John Bierne, Flynn Roberts, Michael Lev, Jeff Cohen, John Keilman, Steve Schmadeke, and Marianne Fergus. The appeals documents from cases.justia.com, caselaw.finelaw.com, and the uh, the Bonjean PDF that's out there for the Degorski appeal. Additional sources, verywellmind.com, uh, archives.jsonline.com, medium.com, article by Chelsea Rose, murderpedia.org, the timeline from peopleofhistory.com, and digitaldreamdoor.com. Midwest Murder is co-hosted by Don Palumbo and myself, Jonah Lanto, produced by the Good, Doc, the Good Talk Network. This episode was written by me, Jonah Lanto. Catch us on Facebook and social media's Instagram, merch store, all that good stuff. We got shows coming out. We Follow do. us, find us. And what a what a moment in Fargo Brewing Company. I know. Man. Wow. This is crazy. Never going to forget this, you guys. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so, so much. much.